When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey there, welcome to The Tint. I'm your host, Scott Feldman, and it's time to look at the aquarium world from a slightly different perspective. Today, I want to talk about something that uh, we've talked about before here in, uh, in our blog, and I think we might have touched on it in the podcast as well, and it's about fish. Like many of you, I'm completely blown away by just the number and variety of tropical fish species that we've managed to breed over the decades. I mean, just hundreds of species that, you know, in, in, even a generation ago were considered almost impossible or unheard of when it came to breeding them. And I think this is as much a testimony to the skill set and dedication of the, the hobbyists and the commercial breeders worldwide as it is to the adaptability of fishes. And with there's obvious implications right now to wild habitats, so, you know, with environmental issues and so forth. So the, the idea of breeding fishes is a very timely one. No one argues the benefits uh, about that. And of course, there are absolutely benefits to a well-managed fishery as well, including protection of the resources, economic benefits to the indigenous peoples, and the preservation of wild populations. You know, programs like Project Piaba which we've, in Brazil, which we've supported here before and we've talked about, they've shown tangible benefits to the people, the environment, and the fishes that you know maybe had an, on a sustainable basis with a properly managed program of sourcing wild-caught fishes. And when it comes to the way we keep the fishes in our hobby, I find a really interesting dichotomy. Think about this. Have you ever thought about the way we've domesticated, so to speak, the fishes that we keep in our aquariums? And I mean, like, we've sort of categorically made fishes more accommodating of the environmental conditions that we would like to provide them with in our aquariums. You know, we've proudly advertised that fishes like discus or cardinal tetras are not requiring uh, soft acidic water to thrive and reproduce. This is interesting. It makes me think about this from multiple angles, both good and bad. Uh, as you know, I spend a, a fair amount of time snooping around, you know, scientific literature online, looking for little tidbits of information that might fit nicely into, um, you know, our movement and our fascination with natural, you know, blackwater, brackish, and other type of aquarium systems. It's fun. It's a little geeky, but it's really educational. It's opened my eyes to a lot of things. And one of the interesting things I found when I've sifted through a lot of the scientific stuff is that you can occasionally find bits and pieces of information which are not only, um, you know, play off a hunch that you had about something. Sometimes they can send you in an entirely new direction. And trust me, I go in a lot of new directions, as you know. And as a lover of brackish water habitats specifically, I've spent a lot of time over the years researching suitable fishes and aquatic organisms that come from this environment. Um, that would be great for aquarium keeping. I've made some interesting discoveries about brackish water habitats specifically and also the fishes which supposedly occurred in them. Notice I used the word allegedly and supposedly. Um, interestingly enough, many of the fishes that we in the hobby have assigned that brackish moniker you know, to are actually seldom found in these types of habitats. Now, perhaps small populations of some of these fishes might be from mildly brackish environments, but many of them are primarily found in pure freshwater. 
perhaps through a combination of misinformation, assumption, and you know, successful practice by some hobbyists over the years, we've sort of attached the brackish water, you know, fish narrative to them in general. Now, sure, many fishes can adapt to brackish water conditions, but I'm more fascinated by the fishes that are actually found in these natural environments. And it's always interesting to me when you could find out that a fish which you've previously dismissed of not having typically come from this environment actually does come from it naturally. It's like a little discovery. Now, one of the happy surprises to me was our good friend, the Endler's Live Bear, Pocelia wingai. Now, many of you love this fish and keep it extensively. It's a very popular little fish, and rightfully so. It's colorful and cool. And it's popularly kept under what we like to call typical live bear conditions in the aquarium. You know, high pH, um, harder water, uh, essentially tap water for much of the world. And yet there are a number of wild populations from their native Venezuela which inhabit mildly brackish water lagoon coastal estuaries and so forth. For example, there's a place called Laguna de la Patos near Cumana, which has definite ocean influence. And it's cited repeatedly as... Uh, a location where um, endlers are found, uh, apparently naturally. Although it's far less salty than researchers thought it may have been in the past, it is still decidedly brackish. And the wild populations residing there might very well be considered endangered or at least very limited. Now, this kind of stuff is not revolutionary from a hobby standpoint. A lot of hobbyists and serious uh, endlers people have researched this stuff for a long time. Um, But... Although these fishes are really adaptable, we don't hear all that much about keeping them in what we call brackish conditions. And brackish meaning, arguably, a specific gravity of 1.003 to 1.005, although I like to push it to like 1.010. It's just interesting for me to ponder and kind of get my head around. Now, with all the popularity of this fish, it seems like the brackish water habitat for the species has not been embraced much at all from the hobbyist standpoint. In fact, you don't hear about what anyway about them putting salt in their water. And I suppose it makes sense. It's far easier to simply give fishes, you know, harder alkaline water than to mess with adding salt in, for a lot of people. And again, wild populations of these fishes are scant and natural habitat data is too. So confirming with any great certainty that they're still occurring in these type of habitats naturally is sketchy at best. And often the so-called populations of these fishes in these specialized habitats like brackish have been distributed as a result of actions by man, and they're not even naturally occurring there, which further confounds things, right? So, in general, the question about adding salt to library tanks has been debated for a long time, and there are many, many views on the subject. Obviously, the ultimate way to determine if you should or should not add salt to an endler's or other library tank would be to consider the natural habitats of the population you're working with. Of course, that's easier said than done because the vast majority of library in the hobby are now commercially or hobbyist bred, and they have been for generations especially endlers, and the wild collection data is, you know, as I mentioned before, it's not easy to obtain. I think that debate's going to go on for a long time. Yet, you know, with this increasing popularity of brackish water aquariums, and, you know, a sector that we've worked in with our estuary line, and I'm excited about it, we're hoping to see more experiments along this idea of, you know, for a lot of different species. Not long ago, I was playing with uh, some specimens of the really miserably named swamp guppy, uh, Microposilia picta, which uh, is a fish that absolutely does come from brackish water. And I have no intention of ever adapting them to, you know, more convenient environmental conditions because it's a brackish water fish. Now, I, you know, I've always been a fan of sort of readapting or repatriating even captive bred specimens of all sorts of fishes. 
uh, to more natural conditions, you know, like black water, kerosens, and cichlids, and so forth. Um, and when I say natural conditions, I mean, well, natural from, you know, perhaps a few dozen generations back, anyhow. Uh, I'm of the opinion that even domesticated fishes uh, can, and I say domesticated with air quotes, can benefit from providing them with conditions that are more reminiscent of those from the natural habitats, you know, that they came from at least generations ago. And although I'm not a geneticist or biological ethicist, I'll, I'll, and I'm just never going to buy into the idea that a few dozen captive generations is just going to erase millions of years of evolutionary adaptation to specific habitats and environmental conditions. And that somehow um, readapting them to these conditions at this point is, some, is detrimental to them. I've actually heard that argument before. Something just seems a bit off, you know, about that to me, at least in my thinking. I just can't get behind that. Now, even more compelling proof that it's not so cut and dry is the recommendations that, you know, you see in best practices of many so-called adaptable species where you're told to do things like, oh, drop the water temperature to spawn them or adjust the lighting or perform water exchanges with peat-influenced water, etc. Stuff that, well, it's intended to mimic the natural conditions found in the wild habitats of the fishes. I mean, what the, you know... Like, right? Like, only give the fishes their natural conditions when we want to breed them? Really? Is that the mindset that we're playing with here? It seems a bit odd to me. Of course, there are some fishes for which we don't really make any arguments against providing them with the natural type conditions. For example, uh, African rift lake cichlids. You just never see anybody say, oh, keep them in soft acid water or tap water. They are always kept in, you know, highly alkaline environments, with often with, you know, cichlid lake salts added and so forth. I find that absolutely fascinating from a hobby philosopher standpoint. I just don't make an argument against that, which is cool. And then there are fishes that, which we have for some you know, reason, um, usually it's to minimize or prevent the occurrence of diseases. We've arbitrarily decided to manipulate their environment deliberately away from their natural characteristics. So for example, adding salt to the water for a lot of fishes that are typically not known to come from brackish habitats. Examples? Killifish, like Nothobranchius, the very well-known um, annual killies, which in many cases don't come from brackish environments naturally. I mean, some might be, but most of them are not. They're from typically from mud holes and even acetic type of water. Yet we dutifully add salt to their water as sort of a standard practice. And of course, the adaptation uh, to a teaspoon of salt per gallon is, you know, is done uh, for prophylactic reasons rather than what's convenient for us. So it's an interesting case because. We have hobbyists deliberately manipulating the environment to something completely different. And then you know it's something different than what these fishes come from. Yet it's done for a sort of a health reason. And um, I just find that fascinating to look at it objectively. And I can't wonder, is salt simply the easiest way to present, you know, prevent parasitic diseases in these fishes? Or are there other ways that don't require such a dramatic environmental manipulation? It's something to think about. It's, I'm curious about that. And then, of course, there's those unexpected populations of fishes, like various danios and even tetras, like gold tetras, for example, which are found in mildly brackish conditions in some populations. That's compelling. It's very interesting. Yet we can't conclude that all gold tetras, for example, will benefit from salt in their water, can we? And as we evolve to a more sustainable hobby with a much greater emphasis on captive bred or carefully sourced wild fishes, and as more habitats are damaged or lost, Will we also lose valuable data about these wild habitats of the fishes that we love so much? You know, data that's going to simply make the default for many fishes just to be tap water? I certainly hope not. 
It's possible though that we've been so good at domesticating our fishes that, you know, to tap water conditions that, you know, it, it, it makes a lot of us think that it may not work if we try to repatriate them to conditions under which they've evolved. Is it more of a niche thing for geeky people like me as opposed to a necessary for success thing? Um, how many discus now are kept and bred exclusively in hard and alkaline water? Markedly different than the soft acid blackwater habitats that they come from in nature and that they've evolved under for eons. Am I just being a dreamer here, postulating, you know, without any hard data that somehow these fishes are missing something when we keep and breed them in conditions other than which they've involved or which the wild populations come from? Perhaps. But I can't help but wonder, do the same genetics which dictate, say, the color patterns and fin morphology of captive bred discus, for example, do they also somehow cancel out the fish's internal programming which allows them to be healthiest in their original native environmental conditions? How do we reconcile that concept? Now, in the end, there's a lot of variables in this equation, and many of them are way over my pay grade, as they say. But I think that the Endler's discussion is just one visible example of fishes which could perhaps benefit from experimenting with, you know, throwback conditions. I'm by no means anything close to an expert on that particular fish, and my opinions are just that, opinions. Commercially, it might not even be practical to do this, but for the hobbyist with time, resources, and the inclination, it would be interesting to see where it takes you. You know, um, keeping the same strain in both brackish and pure freshwater conditions and seeing what kind of different uh, results you get. Would there even be any marked differences between specimens kept under you know, these parallel conditions, natural versus domesticated? Would they show up immediately or would it be something that's evident only after several generations? And again, I keep thinking about brackish water fishes and the difficulty of tracing your specimens to their natural source, which makes this type of thing all the more challenging. It's less of a debate with, you know, fishes like tetras and so forth, which typically come from softer, acidic environments. And there's a lot of room for experimentation and interpretation. I look forward to many of these interesting experiments over the years, uh, bringing more natural conditions to domesticated fishes and perhaps unlocking some more secrets or perhaps simply acknowledging what we all know, that there's really no place like home. That's kind of what it's all about. What's one of the things we've pushed here at Tannen is to get us as hobbyists to explore the natural habitats to learn why the habitats functionally aesthetically chemically environmentally are the way they are what it is that actually brings them it brings these materials to the environments that and and how these environments influence the fishes that reside there it's a fascinating field of study and i hope that uh, at the very least i've piqued your interest in maybe learning a little bit more out of, about this and uh, I just want you to, to stay on top of things and, and learn and experiment, question, discuss, stay observant, stay curious, stay adventurous, stay resourceful, stay experimental, and always stay wet. Until next time, this is Scott Fellman. Thanks for stopping by The Tint. We look forward to seeing you on the next installment.